starting a new series on the gospel according to John. So if you would, um, just uh, meditate along with me these words from uh, the first chapter of John. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I am very excited about the new series beginning this morning called The Invisible Made Visible. It is a study, a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the gospel according to John. A few years back, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know we went through the gospel according to Mark. And personally speaking, uh, maybe some of you feel this way, but personally speaking, it was one of the most enjoyable, intimate times of walking with Jesus, our risen King, that I've ever experienced. It was just a glorious time. So I am looking forward with great anticipation of walking intimately with Jesus again as we go through the gospel according to John. Now, we still walk with him each and every day. I'm not saying that you've got to be in the gospel to do that. But as we learn, as we are studying together this particular gospel, is my prayer that all of us uh, really just come into a greater understanding, knowledge, and love, and, and worship, and treasuring of Jesus because we have gathered together around this such important book. Uh, so that's where I'm at. Now remember, if you're new here, um, well, if, you're, if you've been here a while, you can remember that as we launch into new books of, of our study, we take a step back from the book and we do some foundational groundwork. And that's where we're going to be at today. So if you don't like history or if you don't like the background scenes of what's going on, go to sleep now. Uh, your, your neighbor will wake you when it's all over because that's really what we're going to do. Because it's important to lay a foundation of a book before we launch into a book because it's important for me and for you to expose the scripture. It means to understand what John was saying when he wrote these words to the audience of that day. And once we do that, we figure out what is God saying through John when he penned this letter, and the recipients who received this letter, once we understand that and we can interpret it rightly, then we can bring application. Where you get cults and drinking Kool-Aid and wearing you know, sneakers with quarters in your pockets waiting for the bobbit to come um, is when you just jump into application. Okay, so we don't want to do that. So we're going to just take a step back and kind of talk about the gospel according to John first. Then we're going to deal with the first three simply the first three verses, and then next week we'll jump into the, uh, more of an exposition of the Scripture. Means, exposition means drawing out the principles from the text. Okay, so that's what we like to hear, and then some application. I have to admit there's not a whole lot of application today, but we'll, we'll get there, and you hang in there as you come back each week, and we will definitely be doing more of that. So we're in the Gospel according to John. The invisible made visible. And the first thing we have to ask the question is, who wrote the gospel? Nowhere inside the gospel. And I want to encourage you this morning to open up your Bible, to begin reading through the gospel according to John. 
so that you're familiar with this book as we study it together. Community groups are going to be gathering around this book and studying it, but be on your own reading it would be really wonderful. And one of the things you'll notice when you open up the Gospel according to John is that John does not really name himself in the Gospel. The title John was, was given a little bit after he wrote the book, uh, but nowhere in it says this is John. And there are several reasons we believe as Christians, evangelical Christians, that John actually wrote the book. One of the reasons we know that John wrote this book is because our early church fathers declared it to be so. So early as 160, 170 AD, a a church father named Arrhenius, who explicitly said John wrote this gospel, this good news about Jesus. And what's so important about him is he was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So Polycarp lived with John, was taught by John, walked with John, fellowship with John, had intimacy with the apostle John, and then this other man who was a Polycarp's disciple said, John wrote this gospel. So without skipping any kind of generations, we have immediately that someone very close to John says he wrote this gospel account. W, excuse me, Westcott, B.F. Westcott said five things, and I want to share them with you quickly on how we know This gospel was actually written by John the Apostle. Number one, he says, the author was Jewish. Within the gospel you will find, this gospel account, you will find that the author who wrote this book was very familiar with topics that the Jewish people would understand, like the Messiah or ceremonial cleanliness Jewish customs, uh, the Passover feast, the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication, very intimately understanding Jewish customs, number one. Number two, the author was not simply a Jew, he was a Palestinian Jew, that's where John was from. He says that this author mentions many details about Palestine, about Cana, the Sea of Galilee, the depth of Jacob's well, uh, Bethsaida, and, and Golgotha. So whoever wrote this is not only a Jew, but he's a Palestinian Jew. We also know from the account of the Gospel according to John that the author was an apostle. The Gospel account makes it very clear that whoever wrote this was one of the twelve. In fact, it says in John 13 that he leaned next to Jesus during the Passover dinner. So the conclusion is very clear. The author was the apostle John. In all the other three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the, the Apostle John is mentioned over 20 times. In the gospel according to John, his name is not mentioned once. Not mentioned once. Okay? Not mentioned once. And that's remarkable, and that's telling. Leon Morris says, it's not easy to think of a reason why any early Christian, other than John himself, should have completely omitted all mentions of such a prominent apostle. What you will find as you read the gospel according to John is the author saying this of himself. He is the one or the disciple to whom Jesus loved. You'll see it five times. The one writing this is the one whom this disciple whom Jesus loved. In John 13, 23... Only the disciples up in the upper room, there's just 12, and Jesus at, the, at the, um, the, the Passover dinner before Jesus would be crucified. It says that there was a table, they, they sat around, and that day they would recline, they would actually be sitting. In the custom of that day, 
the presider of the dinner, which would be Jesus, the Passover, would have his closest friends to his left and his right. And we know that, that John, James, his brother, and Peter were the closest to Jesus. We know that James was martyred, and we know that Peter could not have written this gospel account, and that leaves only John. In fact, John twenty-one twenty, it says that Peter turned to the one whom Jesus loved, following him, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Peter's given us a clue. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was next to him. It couldn't have been James. He's already dead. Couldn't wrote this book. It's not Peter because Peter's talking about it. And then it says in chapter 21, verse 24, very simply, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. So as you're studying this, you're going to read all kinds of new people saying, we got this idea, we got this idea. The gospel according to John makes it clear. It was the disciple to whom Jesus loved, the closest to him. Can't be James, wasn't Peter. It has to be the gospel written by John the apostle. Now, who is John? John is not John the Baptist. Maybe some people don't know that. The Apostle John is not John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you remember, was the forerunner of Jesus. He's the founder of the Baptist church. He's not. I know. I hope somebody was laughing. You're tracking with me. Okay. The cousin of Jesus, Elizabeth, was his mom. Remember Elizabeth and Mary? He jumps in the room. That's the apostle, the forerunner of Jesus. John the apostle was a fisherman. In fact, he was not just simply a fisherman. He was a fisherman with his brother James, who was a prominent fisherman. He had boats. He had a business. He had hired servants. He was rather doing well. He's also the youngest apostle. In fact, every time you see James and John mentioned, James is mentioned first, which shows that John was younger. Most scholars think he's probably in his early 20s. So guys, ladies, you're here in your early 20s. Think about it. John sees Jesus. John was also an apostle, it says, of, excuse me, John was also a disciple of John the Baptist, which kind of says that John was waiting for the kingdom. He saw John the Baptist. You can read this in John and the other gospels. He saw John the Baptist, and he is hearing John the Baptist preach about this coming king, this coming Messiah, this road that's being paved for the way of the Lord. And, and John the apostle like, I, I want to hear more. He was ready, he was primed. So when Jesus comes along the Sea of Galilee while he is fishing with his brother James and Peter's with Andrew, along comes Jesus, he drops everything and follows Jesus Christ. Throughout, as I said, throughout the the book and you read all four accounts of the gospel, you will find that Jesus brought three men out of the 12 with him in many, many separate kind of endeavors in ministry. What you'll find as you read the four gospel accounts is that John, his brother James, and Peter were brought into a closer relationship with Jesus than the other 12. When it was time for Jesus to go to the Mount of Transfiguration where the the intrinsic glory, we're going to read about this, of Jesus just shine like this intrinsic infinite light bulb shining through Jesus, it was Peter, James, and John who conversed with Moses. It was John who went with Jesus in the little girl's room in Mark 5 where Jesus took this dead girl, Talitha Kum, little lamb, arise, and she awakens from the dead. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus took with him when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before, he would be crucified, and, and with drops of blood flowing from his brow, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Take this cup from me. Okay, that's John. 
I'm going to give you a portrait of who he is. But John isn't simply just this fisherman who is as intimate with Jesus. Do you know John was also called the son of thunder? And let me tell you why. John was fired up. John had a zeal and a passion and an ambition that was deep within him, but he also at times was somewhat rash and impulsive. John the apostle in Mark 9 is the one who forbids anyone for casting out demons in Jesus' name, saying, you know what, they're not with us. How dare they do that? John and James, this is funny, in Luke 9, I guess it's not funny, is, says to Jesus, you know what, we don't like the Samaritan people. They're not really kind, they're kind of half-Jews. Let's call down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroy them. Like, let's rain tar on them. That's John. <laughs> Luke 9. So John, we see, is growing as a person, as a disciple of Jesus. There's room. As he grows and he understands his role as the apostle. At the end of Jesus' life, his earthly life, as he's hanging on a cross, as he's excruciating pain, that's where the word excruciation comes, out of cross, he's hanging on a cross, lungs filling up. He is in, in agony upon agony. He's ready to take the wrath of our sin upon himself. He looks down from the cross, and he sees John, the apostle, and he sees his mother, his mom. When I gave birth. And he looks to John, he says, looks to his mother and says, your son. Looks to John and says, your mother. In other words, take care of her. You know you're close with somebody, amen? When it's at your last dying breath and you look to someone and say, take care of my mom. There's this intimacy. There's this closeness between Jesus and this apostle John. The Bible says also that when the, when the tomb was empty, Mary Magdalene told Peter and John first about the tomb. They said, ah, you're crazy. Somebody stole the body. And they ran to the tomb. John, being a little more agile, probably younger than Peter, got there first and looked in and witnessed the cloth and the empty tomb. So when John writes this account, it's done through someone through the eyes who, who beheld him, who, who belonged to him, who communed with Jesus. The ladies are studying First John on Monday nights. Same author. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's the Apostle John. That's the one who wrote this. And let me tell you, it's not just, we believe that the Bible is written that John wrote this, but it wasn't just him. John the Apostle, the word tells us, was inspired, or as the scripture says, um, was driven along, moved by the Holy Spirit. So we understand that John was moved by the Spirit of God to give us this account. In fact, Peter says, no prophecy was ever produced by man, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along. Do you realize, and we're going to get there in a couple of months, John 14. This is what Jesus tells John and the apostles, John 14. He says to them, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. Bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to teach you. He's going to, re- he's going to help you to remember the things that I'm teaching you. John 14, 26. John 16, so when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. This is what Jesus is telling him is going to happen. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, 
But whenever he speaks, it's the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, whatever he hears, he will speak. Jesus chooses the apostles, chooses his representatives, pours his spirit out on them, teaches them, instructs them, lives with them, sends them, guides them as they write the scripture. They are the foundation according to Ephesians 2.20 as they write scripture. John, that's the portrait of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. So who wrote the gospel? The apostle John. Why was the gospel written? What is its purpose? Do you know that there are four separate gospel accounts? If you don't know, it's in your Bible, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four separate accounts, okay? Now, all four of those gospel accounts of Jesus were giving to you and to me for us to read today, to learn, to understand, and be transformed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. No doubt. Okay? All of them speak of Jesus' work, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the, day, from the grave. It's all about the good news of Jesus. Each gospel account is for us today. But each one of the gospel accounts does, it has been written for a specific audience in mind. You need to know that as you read through the gospel accounts. Number one, Matthew wrote his gospel for a Jewish perspective. If you read the account of Matthew, it's all about Jesus being the Messiah, being the one who has fulfilled the Old Testament. There are over 150 Old Testament quotes from Matthew. He's about the king. He goes back in in Matthew 1 about uh, how Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham. He goes back and traces his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. That's, That's what Matthew does. Mark, on the other hand, was written to the Romans. And what you'll find in, in, in Mark, you'll find the word immediately happening a lot. They were about getting business done. They were about moving along. It's one of the fast-paced gospels that were written was Mark. There was, it's, it was written for the, the Roman world. He's a, Jesus is the servant. He's the savior in that book. No genealogy wasn't important. 150 present tense verbs are written in that gospel, just pointing to Jesus on the move. Luke was written to the Gentiles. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. In fact, he's the only one that talks about Jesus picking up the ear of the, of, the, of the one whose ear was cut off by Jesus, and he healed him. I mean, that was, you know, if you're a doctor and you're watching Peter take a sword out, cut the guy's ear off, he was going for his head, I think, he missed, and he cut the ear and it falls down, you're a doctor, and you see Jesus pick his ear up, touch him and heal him, that's going to stand out for you. John was written to the Greeks. How do you like the polars here? Pretty cool? It was written to the Greeks. His purpose in writing his gospel, he goes back to the genealogy of Jesus being eternity. John Wright wrote his gospel account to show you that Jesus is God. That he is the God-man. That's his portrait of Jesus. Now that's very important to understand. That that's where he starts in his gospel account. Seven times John says, Jesus is saying, speaking in the gospel account, I am, I am the door, I am the sheep. That points to Jesus' deity as being fully God. Okay? You following, you tracking with me so far? Roughly 90% of the gospel according to John is different than the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic. They're kind of the same. 
John is very, very different. And one of the things that I love about the gospel according to John is that it tells us the reason he wrote it. I don't have to do any homework. It says it right there, chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, I'm one of them, which are not written in this book. But these are written, I'm writing everything down for you, so that, here's your purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's the purpose. John's objective was both apologetic, which means reasonable argument, that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and it's evangelistic. It's for you to come and know and trust in Jesus that you may believe and have life in his name. John says, use the word believe like a hundred times in this book. It's a major theme, believing on Jesus, believing on Jesus. This book was written so that you believe, that you trust in the one in whom it is written about, that he is the Christ. He is the promised Old Testament figure that was spoken to Abraham and to David. He's the Messiah, the king. David was promised that a Messiah would come and he would sit on an eternal throne. The Messiah was promised to Abraham that he will come and he will bless the whole world. And through his lineage and offspring, someone will come and fulfill the covenant made to him. He's the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. We're going to talk a lot about the Son of God. And we're in this book because when I say the Son of God and other people like Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons or Muslims, they think something very differently than what I'm saying or what John is saying in this gospel account. And we're going to talk about that. But this book was written so that you can know that he's the Christ and the Son of God. But let me tell you something else, family. The word believing is also a word that's used that you should keep on believing. So it's not written, if you're here today and you're not sure, you're not sure who this Jesus is, you're in a great place because John's gonna tell us exactly that truth. But if you're a follower of Christ, this book was written so that you can keep on believing. Jesus said, the Jews who believed, he tell them, continue in my word, continue believing on me so that you will be shown as truly my disciples and the truth will set you you free. That's what John is writing about. John 1.18. Listen to this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, that's Jesus, has made him known. You see what that's about? It's that we should continue to know God through Jesus Christ, the treasuring and, and the trusting in Christ above all things. John 14, Jesus said, I've been with you so long, Philip. How could you say you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see that? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, let me, let me break this down and we're going to move on. D.A. Carson, he's a New Testament scholar, tells a story about a four-year-old little child drawing. And the mother came up to little Johnny and said, hey, son, what are you doing? He said, I'm drawing a picture. Really, what, what are you drawing? And he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she said, honey, n- no one knows what God looks like. And he looked up at his mom and said, you know what? When I'm done, they'll know. <laughs> Rather simple. But here's the question. How could you know God? How could you know the will, the ways of God? How could you know the purpose of your life and what you were created for? Coloring books don't do. The truth is rather simple. We can only know him if he reveals himself to us. 
We can only know him unless he reveals himself to us. The Bible says that God revealed himself in creation, Romans 1. That his divine attributes, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, he exists, has been clearly perceived. Ever since creation, he has made this known. We are without excuse. But there's some limitation to creation, is there not? He could, he could have created the world and could have been a, a mad scientist like, like Kynes from Phineas and Ferb. You know, we don't know. Just from creation. God made himself known in creation. God made himself known in, in providence or what we call the mighty acts of God in history. The flood. God made himself known. The burning bush. I am who I am, he says to Moses. Exodus 3, he sends the plagues. We went through that here a couple of months ago. The question that Pharaoh said to Moses before the plagues came was, who is this God? Who is he that I should know? And Moses like, well, stand back because there's going to be a bunch of plagues coming. You're going to know that he's the Lord God creator of the universe. It was to make himself known. Listen, God is a communicative God. God speaks. God communicates. We are created in the Imago Dei. We are people created to communicate. God speaks. God communicates and made himself known to his people. He's not this vague super force who is like the wind without any reason or self-existence, this unspoken energy in the world. The prophets would declare, thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord has come to me. Over and over in the scripture, God is communicating. He's communicating in creation. He is communicating in revelation, making himself known in the word. And he communicates in his salvation as well. Now, let me give you another illustration. Many of you in this room um, know my wife, at least know of her. Maybe some of you don't really know her that well, but you know of her, okay? Um, Maybe you ask me, tell me a little bit about your wife. And I would say... She's a, a beautiful lady. She has beautiful blue eyes, right? She's about five foot four. She loves her family, particularly loves her grandson. She loves the outdoors. She enjoys aerobic classes. And, and now suppose you were interested in, in some of the things I said. Maybe you're looking to go to the gym. You're like, you know what? I, I don't really know her, but I think I'll email her. And you email her and say, hey, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm doing. This is what, you know. And she emails back to you. Well, you have my information. You have her information, but you don't really know us. Suppose you came to my house and stayed with me for a month. Suppose you spent a month with me and us in our home, interacting with you, interacting with each other, when we wake, when we go to bed, when we go to work, how we come home, and you spend that whole month with us. And then the same thing happens, but in reverse. The words I write to you about my wife, the words she writes to you about her email, after you have spent time with me, is going to take on a whole different meaning. It's going to be more full. It's going to be more live. It's going to be more meaningful to you. The reason that people read this scripture and find it dull and not very, you know, worthy of reading is because they don't know its author. Once you know its author, once you know who wrote it and you understand the one right behind it, the richer the scripture comes, you know God, you have an intimate relationship with God, and you read his word, and his word then becomes alive and rich to you. See, that's what the gospel according to John is about. It is God coming down. Who is the gospel then? Number three. Look with me at the prologue. Who is the gospel? 
John's the author. He's writing to let us know that we want to have faith in him. He's writing about Jesus' deity, who Jesus really is. Well, who is he? Well, the prologue, and we don't have a lot of time. We're going to just spend the first three verses. goes from verse 1 to verse 18. Look what it says with me, family. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. Sound familiar? Hmm, I, I think we read that somewhere. Yep, actually the Bible opens up with the words, in the beginning. That's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. John is drawing our attention to Genesis 1, in the beginning. Instead of God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning God, he says, in the beginning was the word. He'll talk and look in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He's talking about creation. In verse 3, I mean, he's talking about creation. He's going to get to that. But Paul is pointing to creation. He's pointing to the beginning. He's pointing to the beginning of the universe. And then he'll point from there and we'll get to the new creation that John talks about in John, in John 3. Paul talks about any man being Christ. He's a new creation, being born anew, having a new spirit, a new heart. But right here, he's pointing back to the very origin, beginning of the word, right? He's not, the word isn't created. He is in existence from eternity. Any Jewish reader would have read right away in the beginning. They would think God. He existed in eternity from way back when. Now, most people in this room know what verse 14 says, the word became flesh. But make believe you don't for a moment. And you pick up this and you say, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, Genesis 1, before time, before creation, before everything, in the beginning, in eternity, God created. It points to his eternality his pre-existent the words pre-existent that's what that's what john is saying right here he pre-existed creation he pre-existed time was the word now that word it means the word the greek word is logos very important the word logos logos can mean inner thoughts logos can mean uh the science of something the logos can mean like reason and logic we get our words biology Right? We get our words theology, the logic, the reason, the study of God, theos, the logic or reason, the study of life, bio. That's what it could mean. It means the logic of something. But logos also means, and you need to understand this if you're going to understand John 1, logos also can mean, and I think means here, is the outward expression, the form, the thought, the, 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 the message, the word, the speech, the outward expression of an inner thought. 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Does it mean the word cross, C-R-O-S-S, is folly? No, it means the message, the self-expression, the, the, the idea, the, the, the outward expression of the speech, the form of the cross, the work of the cross that Jesus died on the cross for your sins is folly to those who are perishing. That's what John has to say here. And in the beginning, in the beginning was the Logos, was the word, was the self-expression of God. Now, understand this. This is why we have these Greek columns up here. In Greek thought, the Logos was their God. The Logos was the rational 
understanding of the universe. In fact, somebody goes back to, I think, a 6th century BC. Uh, he was a man by the name of Heraclitus. Uh, he lived in Ephesus, and he says, you know, basically the Logos is, is the reason that there is not chaos in the world. is because the reason and the, and the, the idea that uh, order is order, there's no chaos, is because of the Logos. That's what he would say. And then the Stoics of that day said that the Logos is the rational principle Everything exists, the impersonable, excuse me, the impersonal principle governing the universe. And then John says, you know what? The Logos became flesh. The Logos was with God. The Logos took on flesh and blood. In other words, saying to the Greeks, listen, the very thing you're trying to figure out, the rational principle, the, the underlying reality of the universe became a man. But you know what? The Jews too had a word for Logos in their category, in their brain. To a Jew... To the Hebrews, the Logos, the Word, is what created the universe. They would understand this. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By his breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The Logos is the creation. The Logos, God's Word. Remember in Genesis 1, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Let there be dry land. There was dry land. God speaks. God talks. God communicates and creates In the beginning was the word, his creative word. God spoke and things happened. Logos was also not only creation, but God's revelation. As I said before, thus saith the Lord. The Lord's word has come to me. God spoke the Abrahamic covenant. God spoke the 10 commandments. He revealed himself to them through the word. Psalm 107 talks about God's salvation. So you have creation, revelation, and salvation. It says, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, the Israelites. He delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed him. Do you see what John is doing? John uses the title Logos to tell the Greeks, listen, you got it all wrong. You keep studying and studying and studying and all your philosophy, all your polytheistic multiple gods, you got it wrong. The eternal creator God became a man. His name is Jesus. And to the Jews, he's saying, yes, God's self-disclosure, God's revelation, God's salvation, God's deliverance has come in the word. In the word. God, he could have used all kinds of different titles, but he chose Logos for a reason. One commentator writes, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. In the beginning, in eternity, there was the Logos, the revelation, the creation, the deliverance of God. Look what it says next. The word was what? The word was with God. Folks, I I know this is heavy, but I want you to see this. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, the word was with God. The idea is face-to-face, intimacy with God. In the beginning, before creation was the word, and this word was face-to-face, intimacy with God. John MacArthur writes, very important, he says, it is of two personal beings face-to-face with one another, engaging an intelligent discourse. What is he saying? He's saying in the beginning, in in eternity, there was the word and the word was with God. So yes, there is oneness, but there is separateness. John was a Jew. John was raised reading the Shema. 
which is Deuteronomy, Hero, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God, he's monotheistic, one God. We don't serve three gods. There's not one God, the Father, one God, the Son, one God, the Son. One God, ekad, plurality in one. Moses said, when a man and a woman come together, how many is that? Two, the answer is two, family. Stay with me now, okay? Man and a woman is two. When they come together in, in, in Genesis, it says that the man marries the wife and they become one, ekad, one. Plurality in singular. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, three persons. John Piper writes, he is God and he is the image of God, talking about Jesus, the word, perfectly reflecting all that God is and standing forth from all eternity as the fullness of deity in a distinct person, one divine essence, three persons, three centers of consciousness. Two are mentioned here, he says, Father and the Son, and we'll learn more about the Holy Spirit later in the book, end quote. And if that's not more, that's not unbelievable. Look what it says next. And the word was with God and the word was God. I I don't know how you can get any more clear. And the word was God. Co-eternal, co-existent, separate from the Father, but all the more fully God, fully man. Do you see what he's saying? Now, I, I have to deal with this just for a moment. Let's just, take, let's just take a break here. And I got to tell you that there are some people and some cults that teach that Jesus was not God, that the word was God is a bad translation. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, they all believe that Jesus was a created being. In fact, Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being, that God the Father's first order was Jesus created him, and then Jesus created everything else. According to the Book of Mormons, Jesus Christ was conceived literally through sexual intimacy with Mary, brother of Lucifer. The Unitarians or the Universalists think that Jesus is Mr. Rogers rolled up with a sweater, won't you be my neighbor? I don't even know. They're kind of crazy. But anyway, Hindus, he's these avatars. Buddhists will say that he's an enlightened man. Scientologists says that Jesus was not God, but this implanted force upon a thetan over a million years ago, and then came in human form. And I'm thinking, I have not done hallucinogenics in quite some time. I have no idea what they're talking about. Muslims will say he's a good man. He's a prophet, right? That, that's what, you know, he, but he's not like Muhammad, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Do you see that? Mark it in your Bibles. You may have some Jehovah's Witness saying, well, that's not the right translation. And I can get into all the different Greek nuances. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I like to read. Uh, let, let, me just, let me just show you here. If you have your Bible open, let me just show you what you tell the Jehovah's Witness. You tell them if they don't believe that God is eternal and that God is the, God is the creator of all things, you just point them to verse 3. Look what it says in verse 3. All things were made through him. And they say, oh, I've had this happen. Well, all things doesn't mean all things. All things mean most things, like Colossians 1. Not all things. They're like, God created Jesus first. He's not God, really. He's a created being. And then after that, say, all right, you know what? Let's read the rest of the verse. And you can do this right in your Bible, too. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's hard for them to get around. I I mean, it can't be any more clear than that. Without him was not anything made. It's explicit. It's emphatic. It's crystal clear. Everything 
You can't be the creator and create everything and create yourself, right? Do we all agree with that? So this word, it says, was in the beginning. He co-eternal, co-existing with God. He was the word and the word was with God. They were face to face. There was intimacy between the two. And the word was God. Look at verse 14 and we'll close on verse 14. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Dr. Tim Keller says this. I love it. He talks about the incarnation. He says, God has not given us a watertight argument to prove Christianity is true. He has given us a watertight person. In the incarnation, he says, the infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The ideal became real. The supernatural became natural. The metaphysical became physical. The invulnerable became vulnerable. The impossible became possible. And the holy one became someone you can hug. I love that. End quote. John is saying, listen, John is saying in his prologue, if you want to know God, if you're here this morning and you're not sure who this God is, this creator God, this this ruling, reigning, sovereign God of the universe, Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you're here this morning and you're not sure, Jesus is saying, look at me. Look to me. If you want to think about who God is, what God's will for your life, if you want to understand who this God is, study Jesus. That's what they're saying. And that's what this study is going to be about. He's the invisible God made visible so that we can walk with him and see him, love him, treasure him, know him as we study the gospel of John together. Now, John wasn't the only one that wrote this about Jesus being the word. Listen to Hebrews 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. You see the similarities? You can read Hebrew 1, you think, all right, God spoke. He spoke through miracles. He spoke through providence. He spoke through his prophets. He had all these ways to reveal himself to the world. And now, finally, he just raised up another prophet like the rest. His name is Jesus. That's a bad interpretation of that verse. Actually, the verse literally means he is been known to us, his word is in son, not in the son, but in son. In other words, Hebrews is saying the final revelation, the ultimate revelation, the ultimate expression of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Through him, all things were created, and by him, he holds all things together. So, to the Greek gods, the word became flesh. You're running around trying to rationalize. And there are a lot of people today that are spiritual. There are a lot of people spiritual. They follow this philosophy, that philosophy, this meaning, that meaning. And they're chasing after spirituality. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos is God. 
the Logos, it says, became man, took on flesh and blood, and dwells among us. So let me give you two things to walk away with because of this truth of John, what he writes in 1 through 3 of the opening dialogue, prologue of, of the gospel. Number one, when the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven, saw the brokenness and jacked up world we live in, Jesus did not sit back in heaven's glory as the eternal second person of the Trinity and say, you made the mess, you find your way back. Jesus Christ looked down at this broken, jacked up world, hears our cries, and comes down and becomes vulnerable for you. He becomes breakable for you. He becomes killable for you and I. When the Lord Jesus came down, he not only thought it's possible that I have to give my life, but he knew that was his mission. John over and over would say that Jesus is on his way to the cross. The time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. And Jesus knows what his time means. And in the incarnation, in the reality of this God coming down, we're going to talk about this more, is the fact that Jesus came even though he knew he would be crucified and vulnerable and killable for you. Number two. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, we're going to get to it, but you could circle that right now in your Bible. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle from the Old Testament. That Jesus came down and look at it says, he tabernacled, he tented with us, and we beheld his glory. You know what John is doing? John is forcing the Jewish people to understand and to remember that when Moses was on the mountain, when this whole tabernacle thing came to be, Moses went on the mountain and said to God, I want to know you, I want to have intimacy with you, I want to connect with you, I want to see your glory. And God said, if I show you my glory, you will melt on the spot. You will not be able to live. But God says, listen, what I want you to do, I want you to build a tabernacle, and I will come down, and I will pour out my glory. But it's got to be behind the Holy of Holies because if you see it, you will not survive. But I'll build a tabernacle. But you build a tabernacle, and I will come. I will come. But right now, my glory must be concealed. You can't behold it. You can't know it. Old Testament, do you realize that what John is saying is the complete opposite? What John is saying is Jesus is the tabernacle. That we beheld the glory of Moses, the glory that Moses could not see, we see in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself is the end of the tabernacle. He himself is the end of the temple sacrifices. And all that was there culminates and fulfills in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know God? Come to know Jesus. If you want to have your sins forgiven, come to know Jesus. He is the God of the universe. His perfect life was given to us so that we can have a substitutionary atonement, dying in our place. The God-man came to earth, tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. That's what John's about. John's about seeing Jesus, the invisible made visible. John's about knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, treasuring Jesus, walking with Jesus, knowing God. Are you ready for that? Maybe you're here and you're not sure. 
Or maybe you're here and you've been walking with Jesus, but you know what? You're feeling estranged. You're feeling a little bit like, you know, I'm not very close with Jesus. God would call us to repentance. That means turning from your sins. And that means trusting in Him alone. It means knowing Jesus, treasuring and loving Him above all things. He is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray that God would raise up His people to demonstrate and declare the gospel of who Jesus really is. And that our minds and our hearts will not be centered on the God that we make up in our own imagination, but the truth of what God has declared to be true in His Word. As God reveals Himself to us, I pray that we will worship Him, live on mission with Him together. Let's pray. Father, this beautiful, beautiful portrait of your Son. is so overwhelming but beautiful. God, we pray that as we see him for who he really is, there's only one thing we can do. Bow our knee to the King of Kings and love him with our whole heart. Father, thank you for this beautiful portrait. And Father, as we respond, as we continue to pray and sing to you, Father, I would ask that your spirit would do a work in our hearts, that we would see him and love him and behold him and get a glimpse of his glory and worship Jesus as the one true redeemer, savior of the world.